I absolutely love that picture of people running with total abandon to be reunited with their loved ones. I have some friends that are in the military, and he'll go for a six-month deployment, and he comes home, and we've gotten to be part of uh, those kind of reunions. Never in front of like 80,000 people like that last one. That was a little unfair, I think. But do you notice they didn't care? They didn't care about the rest of the crowd. They were running full speed to jump into the arms of their loved one who they were being reunited with. They run with confidence because they know that their enthusiasm and their affection is going to be accepted and it's going to be returned, right? You don't run and jump into someone's arms thinking they're probably not going to catch you. Uh, you do that with total confidence that that, is going, that affection, that connection is going to be returned. Um, I appreciate everybody being here. Someone joked with me this week that we would kind of see how well last week's sermon went by how many people showed up again. Uh, and I don't know how many of you kind of feel tricked because you didn't know I was going to preach today and you showing up for the first time. But uh, I appreciate those of you that were here last week and came again. Uh, nothing helps, you know, boost a little bit of confidence. Uh, and I need all the help I can get because, as you saw, I already didn't turn my mic on. And then uh, halfway through the last song, I was having a hard time because I realized my Bible was in my backpack back in the back of the room. And uh, that was going to make it a little tricky. Thankfully, I had that video as a little buffer so I could get, get myself situated. But uh, last week in our series, Hashtag Why I Run, we talked about why we run from God. And we're using the book of Jonah to talk about these ideas. We focused on why Jonah went away from God and how that relates to our own disobedience. And I think if we were honest with ourselves, we saw a lot of ourselves in some of the motivations that Jonah had when he ran away. But what about the flip side of that idea? What about this idea of running to God? like we just saw in the video, like the picture we've just described, that total abandon, that total confidence, knowing that when you jump into his arms, he's going to catch you. So last week, running from. This week, we're going to talk about running to God. And I want you to know our big idea today, I'm going to say it a bunch of times and you're going to get sick of it. But I hope if you don't remember anything else, you'll remember the video, probably. But if you don't remember anything I say, you'll remember, remember this phrase today. You can run to God with confidence because of who He is. It's not about who you are. It's not about what you've done. It's not about getting ready to run to God. You can run to God with confidence no matter where you're at, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, because of who He is. So let's pray together before we dive back into Jonah. God, I thank you so much for today. I thank you for the lessons that we can learn when we dive into your word. God, that it's alive, that it's you speaking to us. It's not just a collection of books that have been passed down. It's, it's living and active, and it's sharp, and it will teach us if we'll allow it to. God, I pray for your spirit to move today. I pray that the words of those songs will be true, not just in our mind, but in our hearts, that we want you to move in our individual lives, in our church, in our community, and we know that the only way that can happen is through the power of the name of Jesus. And so, God, I pray that that would become crystal clear to us today if it isn't already, and that we would see maybe some ways that we need to run to you with abandon this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So a quick recap of Jonah. If you were here last week, you'll remember that Jonah lived in a small town kind of near a, a port city called Joppa, and God tells him to go to Nineveh 
and preach a really tough message, to preach destruction, to let them know that God's coming to destroy their city. And the Assyrians, Nineveh was right in the heart of Assyria. They were known for being cruel. And so Jonah didn't really like that assignment. He was a little bit scared of that assignment. He took off and went the other way. Last week we had a map. Joppa was 500 miles to the east, and he was trying to go 2,500 miles to the west. So 3,000 miles away from where God wanted him to go. He jumped on a ship and headed in that opposite direction because he knew that God was a gracious God, and he didn't think the people of Nineveh deserved a chance to escape destruction. So that was pretty tough. Jonah made... He basically took... Um, the role of God into his own hands, and he said, they don't deserve to hear about your forgiveness, so I'm going to take off, and I'm going to go the other way. If God wants to do that, he'll have to use someone else. And that's right where we want to pick up today. We're going to fill in the gaps in the middle that happened uh, to Jonah between the beginning and end that we talked about last week. So we're going to be in chapter 1, verse 4, and as you can see, we're going we're gonna to go through a lot of the book. And I thought about leaving some of this out, but I just can't. Um, and I think we're going to have a great time diving in to Jonah today and seeing all of what that says. So Jonah chapter 1, verse 4, if you don't have a Bible, they're under your seat um, or in front of you on the little rack. And we're going to be on page 861. If you don't know where Jonah is, it's easy to miss. It's like one page in the Bible. So knowing that page number can be really helpful. So chapter 1, verses 4, says this. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break apart. And the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. All right, so what's going on here? Jonah is asleep in the bottom of the ship. He's obviously pretty comfortable in his um, disobedience, right? He goes down to the bottom of the ship, and he goes to sleep. He doesn't even realize that God has put a storm on on the water, and the mariners are fighting for their lives. They're doing everything they can. They believed in multiple gods. They even had household gods. They're praying to all the gods they can think of in their pagan culture. Nothing is working. And they remember there's a guy that they picked up in Joppa that they don't know a whole lot about, that's down sleeping in the bottom of the boat. And they're like, well, maybe that guy's God can do something. And so the captain goes down there, and he's kind of freaking out, right? It's like, what do you mean? How can you be sleeping through this? We need all the help we can get. What about your God? Um, They think maybe his God could make a difference. Now, I wonder, do we ever meet people like this? Maybe there's people like this all around us, and we just don't pay attention. But they're grasping at whatever solution they can find. They're in a storm. They know that life is broken. They know things aren't the way they're supposed to be. And they're looking for any answer they can get. They're grasping for anything. We don't call them gods. We don't have household gods. But I think people reach out to things they think might help as if they are gods in this culture. Well, what did they need? I'm not much of a sailor, but I know if your ship is going places you don't want it to go, and I don't know if you do this in a storm because it probably would be a bad idea, but if your ship is just floating away, what do you need? You need an anchor, right? You need something that can hold you, something that's a solution. Hebrews 6.19, I love this. It says, we have God's promise as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, 
a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Now, that may be a little confusing. It says Jesus goes into the place behind the inner curtain. This uh, was written to Jews who understood about the inner uh, place where the priest went. The only person that got to go in there was the high priest. It was actually the presence of God that he entered into once a year. And they would tie a rope around his foot in case he died in there and they had to drag him out because no one else could go in there. Okay, so he's talking about how Jesus has gone as a forerunner to us so that we have access to the very presence of God. And that's a sure and steadfast anchor for our soul, a hope that you can find nowhere else. So we have that anchor. If you know Jesus, you understand that answer. And Jonah once again shines a light on where we fail so often. He's asleep in the bottom of the boat while the mariners are fighting for their lives against a storm that's caused by Jonah's disobedience. Right? Jonah's disobedient, and the mariners are paying the price in this moment. He had the answer. He had the anchor. We know the answer. We have that anchor of Jesus to face the brokenness of this stormy life. And I think so often we're asleep in the bottom of the boat. And we're, we're letting the storm go all around us in people's lives that God has put us in contact with, and we're asleep in the bottom of the boat. They're grasping for whatever solution they can find. And here we are with the answer, Right? Even though I don't understand it, God has chosen to use us to work through to expand his kingdom. He's chosen to use us. It's not a passive purpose. It's not a passive mission. We can't be asleep in the bottom of the boat. I think about another thing that happened in the New Testament where Jesus and the disciples had been with crowds all day long, and Jesus just needed a break. He just needed to recharge. He needed to spend time with God. Um, and he, so he sent the disciples ahead to cross the lake, and while they're out there, kind of in the middle of the night, a windstorm comes up, and they're rowing really hard. Said so they fought the wind for hours. And Jesus comes out there to join them, and how does he get there? He just walks on the water, right? Seems normal. Uh, well, the disciples were kind of freaked out, as you can imagine. Their first thought was that it was a ghost. They see someone coming to them on the water. Next thing they say is uh, Peter recognizes Jesus and says, if that's you, let me come out there and join you, right? So Peter, even though he gets a bad rap, he's impulsive, he does things that are a little bit crazy at times, um, he was the only disciple that had the faith to step out of the boat. And he walked on the water until he realized where he was and saw the waves and kind of freaked out, lost track of Jesus, and he sunk. Jesus was there to grab him. So not only do we not need to be asleep in the bottom of the boat, we can't just sit by and watch either. It's not someone else's role. It's all of us. It's all of our mission. We need to not only wake up in the boat, we need to be willing to step out of the boat and have the faith to follow Jesus, to join Jesus in his work wherever that is taking place. Jesus is calling us. He's calling me. He's calling you to join him in his kingdom work. And I think I need to ask myself, am I asleep in the boat or am I just sitting and watching? I need to renew my commitment to running to God because he wants to use us. He wants to use you. He wants to use me. He wants to use our church to do incredible things. But we've got to wake up and get out of the boat. So back to Jonah, verses 7 through 10. Let's see what happens next. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. 
So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So here we go. They, they break out the straws. They cast lots. I don't know how they did this exactly. But uh, they passed them around, and Jonah got the short straw. Still, Jonah is not very forthcoming about what's going on. He knows it's his fault. Maybe he's hoping that the short straw will end up in someone else's hand, and he can sort of go, oh, good, it's that guy. Uh, but he knows it's his fault, right? Instead of leaving it up to the casting of lots, he could have stepped forward and repented even at that moment. But his disobedience continues to impact their journey in a very destructive way. It's pretty amazing to me. They didn't know a whole lot about this guy that's sleeping in the bottom of the boat, right? They had a lot of questions for him. They didn't know where he was from, what he did, uh, where he was going. And when they heard that he was a Hebrew and he feared the God of heaven, the creator of sea and land, they had an immediate reaction. They were really afraid. The, the text doesn't tell us this exactly, but I think it's, it's interesting and probably safe to imply that the God of Israel had a reputation. I mean, imagine what's been going on in this region for the last uh, couple of hundred years, right? The story from the escape of Egypt, you don't think that circulated in the region a little bit? I think it probably did. And then when they finally ended up in the promised land 40 years later after being in the desert, they come into the promised land and what happens? They take over with God's power. They're outmanned. There, there weren't guns, but it's the only word I can think of. They're outgunned, right? They're outmatched. They're outmanned and outmatched, and they still take over the promised land because God was helping them with his power. Now, I think that probably was something that people talked about in that area. You don't mess with that God of Israel. He's the, he's the God above all gods. And so here they are, and they realize that Jonah worships the God of Israel, and they're exceedingly afraid. They're very troubled, and they know their trouble is because of his disobedience. And Jonah ends up telling them the only way to save themselves is to throw him overboard. Again, it's amazing how far Jonah's willing to go to run from God. He could have repented there and saved a lot of trouble. But he, instead of wanting to go back to God in obedience, he said, it's better if I just get thrown overboard. That'll solve everything. He's choosing to die rather than repent and turn to God. They don't really like that idea. <laughs> Even though they're, they're these pagan mariners, they don't want to kill this guy. And in the midst of their lives being in danger, they still try to row to shore, and they end up realizing there's no way it can work. There's no way it's going to happen. They see no other choice, and they throw him overboard. And here's what happens in verses 14 to 16. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. And the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. They feared him exceedingly. We've heard that word twice now. And we think about running to God. The first thing we see in Jonah is that when people truly encounter God, their lives are changed. When people truly meet with the almighty God of the universe, their lives are changed. These sailors are obviously part of the pagan culture of Jonah's day. 
They didn't really have a lot of background knowledge or deep understanding of who God was, but they'd heard about him. They knew of his power. And when faced with the reality of God's presence and power, they acknowledged him through sacrifice and made vows to him and feared him exceedingly. Now, this is important. Don't miss the significance of this. It's a radical thing for them to make a vow to a single God. It was a very radical thing, acknowledging that the God of Israel was the God above all gods because of what they had just experienced in their encounter with him. It's a radical shift. Their lives were changed because they met with God. And when I think about our church, you know, one of the great things about being a pastor is you get to experience things in people's lives, share things in people's lives. You get to see lives changed. And uh, I, was, I was scared when I added up the years, but I've been working at a church for 27 years now. 27 years. And I've gotten to see so many lives that have been changed because of an encounter with God. Um, mine being one of them. So I want to tell you my story of encountering God real quick. Uh, when I was 14, I grew up in a pastor's home. I was around church and the things of God all the time, but I'd never really had an encounter with him. And when I was 14, I was the typical preacher's kid that people write books about and things. Uh, how do you deal with this guy, right? Uh, my youth pastor had it the worst because I would do things to him, that, and that's probably why God had me do youth ministry for 13 years. Uh, um, but I would do things to him that were disrespectful, that just didn't make any sense. Um, and so we went to youth camp, as, as youth groups typically do, and on the last night of camp, a Thursday night, which is typically when all the stuff happens, people cry on each other's shoulder and hug, and I didn't want any part of that crazy scene. And so a friend and I were skipping worship to break dance back in the dorm. So that'll date me a little bit. Uh, but yeah, we had our cardboard on the floor, and we were spinning on our head and stuff. And um, I, I brought my parachute pants for the week. So we're break dancing back in the dorm. And the youth pastor catches us. And he's like, what are you guys doing? You know, this is the last night of worship. This is really important that you come and you allow God to maybe have a chance to speak into your life. And I didn't want any part of that, but he made, made us go anyway. And during the singing, I was trying to be as distracting as possible. Singing off-key on purpose. Uh, it was on purpose, I promise. Uh, as loud as I can, distracting people all around me. Uh, during the message, I completely tuned out. I didn't want anything to do with what that guy up there had to say to me. Um, didn't allow God to say anything to my heart. But here's what God did. He brought one of my running buddies up on stage. I didn't get emotional saying this in my room the last couple of days. Uh, one of my running buddies up on stage at the end of the service. And he said, I've been playing a game with God. I've been religious, but I've never really encountered God in a real way. And I made, God encountered me tonight, and I've dedicated my life to him. He's now my Lord and Savior. And there's other people out there in this crowd right now that I know are doing the exact same thing that I did, and you need to make it right tonight. Goodness. <laughs> that was my encounter with God. He was speaking directly to me. And so that night I gave my life to Christ, and it's never been the same. I wasn't a horrible kid. I was just disrespectful, and no one wanted me in their group, but I wasn't a horrible kid. <laughs> but God, God changed my life 
that night because of an encounter I had with him, a very real encounter that I had with him. And when I look around this room, I think about stories of marriages that have reconciled that the world said would never last or couldn't work. I think about people that walked in darkness for years that have been awakened to the light of Jesus and the truth of God. And in their own words, their lives will never be the same. I see people that carry deep wounds, deep wounds from different circumstances in their life, things that are even out of their control. But they're here, and they're finding healing and acceptance and community in the family of God because of an encounter they've had with God. That's why when we think about our mission, I think we often overthink it. We don't need a great church marketing plan. We don't need a compelling argument. Uh, We don't even need a fancy building or even a place to meet. We don't need legislative morality. We don't need more protests or Christian slogans. We need to help people truly encounter God because that's when their lives are changed. That's why one of our prayers every week before the service, we have a prayer time at 930. Every week we want to pray that God's presence is powerful. Our goal is not to impress anyone with a well-run organization or great music or uh, somebody that talks for a little while and hopes you remember something. Um, Our goal is not to have great snacks and coffee, even though we do. Our goal is to create an environment where people encounter God because that and that alone will change their life. And so here's a question I can't go forward today without asking you. Have you had an encounter with God? You notice I didn't ask if you understood everything about Christianity. I didn't ask if you understood everything about church or if you knew everything about the Bible. That's not the prerequisite. Look at the mariners on the ship with Jonah. They certainly didn't know all that stuff. I didn't ask you if your life was more good than bad, if we put it on a scale, which way would it go? That's not what God asked either. The great thing about running to God is that he is ready to receive you no matter where you're at in life or where you've been. He is ready to receive you. Think back to the picture of the people in our video running into the arms of their loved ones when they get reunited. What about something a little more every day? One of my favorite memories is coming home from being gone for a while or coming home from work and your two-year-old that can barely run and you're afraid every time they start because you think they're going to tip forward, right? They start running and they wrap themselves around your leg before you can even put your stuff down. Or maybe you've been away from family for a long time and you finally get to see them again because they live in another state and you, you meet at the airport and you run together and are reunited. Well, one of my favorite mental pictures of God is exactly that, that he's down on our level with his arms open wide, a smile on his face, waiting for me, waiting for you to run and jump into his embrace. You can run to God with confidence because of who he is, because he's there ready and willing to accept you. So back to Jonah. He's thrown overboard. God sends a great fish. This is the part we all remember, right? A great fish to swallow him up where he spends three days and three nights. This is miserable. Okay, I want you to think about this for a second. We kind of just gloss over this. Like, oh yeah, he was in the fish. Um, I don't know if you've ever cleaned a fish. Uh, But just imagine the smells. Imagine the taste 
the sights, the sounds, the textures that he experienced in that fish. In what had to have been his lowest moment. Remember, Jonah still hasn't repented. God gave him all these opportunities to not let it progress further. And he still hasn't repented. He's in that fish in the most miserable situation of his life. And Jonah cries out to God. And chapter 2 records for us his prayer in the fish. And this is one of the spots that gets skipped over a lot in Jonah. But I, I want us to look at it. And I want you to think about putting yourself into this prayer as we read it today. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. At the roots of the mountains I went down to the land, whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought me up. You brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it spit Jonah out upon the dry land. So here we see the second thing about running to God. When we genuine, genuinely repent and turn to Him, God is always there to receive and to deliver us. You think about Jonah's journey with God up to this point. He's given a mission. He runs the other way. He endangers the life of the ship's crew while sleeping. He certainly could have repented then, and I think some of this hardship would have been avoided. The near-death experience of the storm still isn't enough to turn his heart back to God, and rather than repenting, he chooses death. But rather than dying... God has him swallowed and kept in this giant fish for three days and nights. This is a crazy couple of weeks, right? This is, a, this is a wild time in Jonah's life. And you can see why this would most likely be his lowest moment. And you know, sometimes we have to fall flat on our back before our attention and our focus will be in the right direction. Sometimes we have to fall flat on our back before we're able to focus on the Lord of the universe, the Savior of our lives, Jesus, who says, focus on me. Focus on me. And where does Jonah finally look? He looks to God. He repents and he looks to God. Just, uh, I don't know if you could pick it up so quickly, but look at the back and forth that he has in this prayer. He says, I called out of my distress. What does God do? God answers. He says, I cried for help. What does God do? God hears he has an extended description of how far into the depths, it's like two or three verses, of how far into the depths of despair he has fallen. And he ends that with saying, God brings his life up from the pit. Then he has an explanation of his newfound devotion and his final acknowledgement that salvation belongs to God. And what does God do? God rescues. Right? What a back and forth. It's one of the most poignant prayers of repentance in all of Scripture. It's a cry out of absolutely horrible circumstances of his own creation. He's there because of his disobedience. And here he is, the man that recoiled at the thought of God extending mercy to Assyria, begs for God to give him grace and compassion. In the depths of the ocean, Jonah finally turns and cries out to God, the God that he was running from. 
and he runs to him with abandon. Finally, once again. It's really the best definition of repentance. It's a course correction. You're headed one way, um, and you realize that's not the way that I need to go. Instead of running from God in disobedience, I'm going to course correct. I'm going to stop, and I'm going to turn, and I'm going to begin, begin running to him. That's repentance. You can run to God with confidence because of who he is. You can repent and go a different way with God's power in your life because of who he is. There's no better picture of this than Luke 15. In Luke 15, we have the story that Jesus tells of the prodigal son. And it's an example of us of how much God loves us. The son asks for his inheritance early. He's not supposed to get it yet, but he's tired of being under his dad's thumb. He gets his money and he leaves, goes to another part of the country, and he spends it on wild living. Okay, so you can just imagine what that would look like. He spends it in ways that shouldn't be spent. It's all gone. Famine hits the country. He cannot even feed himself. He ends up working for a pig farmer, feeding slop to the pigs. Now, for a Jewish man, this is even more of a, a degrading thing to do than it just being a, a tough job. Okay? Feeding pigs. Was, he was unclean at all times um, from his religious heritage. So, And he thinks in that moment, he wishes for what they're eating. And he thinks, you know what? The servants back at my dad's house are better off than I am right now. Maybe if I'll humbly go back to him and just ask to be a servant, he'll let me come into the household and be a servant. But here's what happens. In verse 20 of Luke 15, when the son comes back to ask if he can be a servant or not, I want you to see this. It says, he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. This isn't just a story about a father and a son. This is God to us. Okay, so um, the father was watching for him. The father saw him. The father had compassion and ran to him. Now, I don't know if you know this, but men used to wear dresses in this day. Okay? Uh, not really dresses, but lots of robes, right? And it says they would gird up their loins whenever they needed to, like, move quickly. Well, this meant they, like, reached down and grabbed their robe and, like, held it up. This was a humiliating thing to do. You didn't just do this for anybody, okay? <laughs> so this father is willing to do that and run to his son because his son is worth it. Um, no matter what he had done, no matter where he had been, the father's arms flew wide and embraced his lost son. It's an incredible picture of God and his readiness to receive any that will repent and come to him. So I don't know where you're at today. You might be at a low point. You might be running from God as hard as you can, or maybe you think you can just hide out from him. But understand that you can stop. You can turn back to God, and he will receive you. He will deliver you. He will rescue you. You can run to God with confidence because of who he is and what he's done. Put yourself into Jonah's prayer. Call out in your distress. God will answer. Cry out to him for help. God will hear. No matter how far you've fallen, God can bring you up. Accept responsibility for your disobedience. Repent and go in a different direction, following Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and he will rescue. It's like a loving father longing for his long-lost son or daughter to come home. He's ready to receive and deliver you. You can run to God with confidence because of who he is. 
And the third thing we see about running to God is God's role is righteous judge, but his preference is to act as Savior. Okay, sin has to be dealt with. God is holy. He can't be in the presence of sin. He is the righteous judge. That's his role. But his preference is to act as Savior. So finally, after a very roundabout journey, Jonah's ready to be obedient. He's ready to fulfill God's mission to Nineveh. And let's see how this plays out. In chapter 3, he finally does what God told him to do in the first place. It says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth. So it would take you three days to walk across it. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's one of the shortest sermons, right? You wish that mine was that short, right? Uh, Yet forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published it through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and the nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce, fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Notice the message God gives Jonah, again, is one of destruction. So he's walking around saying, hey, this place is going to, God's going to destroy this place in 40 days. That had to have been a popular message, right? Um, and that's the whole message that God gave him. And in verse 5, we have a really short verse that describes one of the greatest revivals in all of human history. It says, and the people of Nineveh believed God. The people of Nineveh believed that God was going to judge them for their wickedness, and they were like, what, what can we do? How can we change this? In relation to sin, God's role is the righteous judge. The wickedness of Nineveh, it said in chapter 1, verse 2, had come before him. He had noticed it. Uh, Something had to be done. By sending Jonah, though, God extends an opportunity for repentance and salvation from the judgment that was coming. What's really cool about this situation is we've got Jonah that's in the Old Testament, but Jonah is a foreshadowing of Jesus who comes in the same way. Jesus himself uses Jonah as an explanation for his mission on earth. I think this is really fascinating. Um, And he says this in Matthew chapter 12. I want you to see this on the screen. 12, 38 through 41. Some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, that's Jesus, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. This is, this is amazing, this interaction with Jesus and the Pharisees. The Pharisees are once again doubting him and asking him to perform a, perform a sign to prove his claims of who he is. 
And he responds by saying, you've already got everything you need in the prophet Jonah. Because Jonah went to the Ninevites and preached God's judgment. And Jesus, who is greater than Jonah, when he says that at the end, he's talking about himself. He came to take God's full wrath and punishment for sin on our behalf. Because the punishment of sin has to be carried out. But God, in his great love for us, chose to extend that punishment onto his only son, Jesus. God is still a righteous judge. Sin is judged. But through the sacrifice of Jesus, he extends forgiveness and salvation to all who will repent and believe. And here's the part that really blows me away. Jesus says that the Ninevites, who were known for their wickedness, for their torture, their evil had come up before him and he knew something needed to be done about it, the Ninevites would rise up and condemn the current uh, generation of religious leaders that Jesus was talking to. These weren't just uh, random people. These are the people that had like the first five books of the Bible memorized. The Jewish leaders. They lived it their whole, they studied it their whole life. And he said, the Ninevites are going to rise up in judgment of you because when they heard, they repented. And here I am right in front of you and you don't believe. You ask for a sign. Man, that is tough. So Jonah, running from God to keep his message from reaching Nineveh because he didn't like them, didn't think they deserved the chance to repent, to Jesus who holds up the Ninevites to the Pharisees as an example of what it really means to repent and believe. I'm not sure what your view of God is today, but know this, that God brought you into this place for a reason. No matter who drug you here or what kind of decisions you think you might have made this morning, God knew you were going to be here. God does the drawing. And he wants you to understand that when you think about this hashtag why I run question, there's two perspectives. Is it from the perspective of running from God that we talked about last week? Or is it from the perspective of running to God? You can run to God with confidence because of who he is. Three questions. Have you truly encountered God? and allowed him to change your life. Run to him because only he has the power to change. Do you need to repent and turn to his open arms? Run to him because he alone holds the keys of forgiveness. He is the righteous judge, but he made a way for you to find a savior. Run to him with confidence because of who he is. We spend a lot of our, our lives running. Don't spend any more time running from him. Remember that picture. He's at our level with a smile on his face, arms outstretched, ready to embrace, to receive you if you'll turn to him and run to him. Don't spend another day running from God. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for just the example of your love, your salvation, your grace. We see it in the Old Testament. It ties into the stories of Jesus in the New Testament. And God, we can see that we can run to you with confidence. We're all messed up. We're all broken. We all need a Savior. And God, thank you for providing Jesus to be that Savior for us. I pray in these next few moments as we respond to you, we would be reminded of the incredible sacrifice of Jesus as we take communion, that people that are ready to respond to you would do so using their connect card or possibly talking to someone, praying with someone. But God, more than anything in this moment, help us to see that 
running to you is the much better choice, the much better option. And it's provided because of who you are, not because of who we are. In your precious name I pray, amen. So as we do every week, we're going to move into a time of response. This is opportunity for you to focus on God, to turn to God, to deal with in your life, to deal with possibly hurt, um, to pray with someone, to indicate on your connection card things that you need prayer for, decisions that you might want some guidance with. You can put those in the box over here. We have these little boxes at the front if you want to do that when you come forward. We take communion because it's an act of response. It's an act of remembrance. We remember what God did, how he provided the possibility for us to be right with God. It's only through his son who was killed. It's his broken body and his blood that makes it possible for us to be forgiven. We never want that to be taken for granted. And so every other week we take communion in obedience to him as a reminder of what Jesus has done. So as we respond, worship in the way that God leads you to. There's people in the corners that would love to pray with you. Let us know what we can do to help you as you make that choice to run to God, possibly today even for the first time. Let's worship together. Thank you.